0: I hope you will open your Bible and turn to Joshua 7. If you're thinking we're spending a lot of time in Joshua 7, you have judged correctly. Joshua 7 is one of those chapters that's a locus classicus for an important doctrine. If you think of, where do I go to find out about the new birth? You'd go straight to John 3. Where do I go to find out about the bodily resurrection? You'd go to 1 Corinthians 15. Where do I go to know how to deal with indwelling sin? You would go to Romans 7. But if you want to know where to go to deal with the corporate nature of sin, Joshua chapter seven is the text. And so being individualistic Americans who don't think anyone, what anyone else does affects us or what we do affects anyone else, I'm spending a bit of time here to convince us of what the Bible teaches about corporate and covenantal consequences of sin. Let me remind you of just a tiny bit of historical context. When we open to Joshua 7, and you will need your Bible open, and we'll be looking at other texts as well that shed more light on this. When we open Joshua 7, Israel under Moses and then Joshua's leadership was sustained by God supernaturally in the wilderness for 40 years. Israel has now been brought into the promised land by the Lord's strong hand. They've been shown God's strength in crushing the first of the Canaanite cities, the stronghold walled city of Jericho. And now Israel, in their second battle, has been routed by one tiny army, the the local militia of the city of, or the town really, of Ai. And Israel has suffered casualties, and the whole nation is perplexed, thrown into discouragement, fearful. The elders of Israel have recognized that God's hand of blessing has been removed for the moment. And so the elders, as we saw last week, humble themselves, pray all day, tear their clothes, pour dust on their heads, and seek God's direction, and they are engaging in corporate repentance. And I want you to notice, pick up the narrative in Joshua 7, verse 10. God issues a command to Joshua. The command is very pointed. It's an imperative. It tells Joshua, get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? The principle we're to see here is weeping in prayer, what God is saying. Weeping in prayer must lead to action. In this case, weeping in prayer must lead to church discipline. Doesn't it sound spiritual to say, no, we don't really deal with sin in the camp. We just pray for them. And this text shows the folly of such a view. God doesn't say to Joshua, just stay there on the ground and pray there about it and everything will be all right. Joshua says, get up, there's action to take. Now let me give you a couple of maxims on prayer because what we've just seen is Joshua and the elders in prayer crying out to God. Maxim number one, beware of activity not rooted and grounded in prayer. But the second maxim is beware of prayer that has no intention of acting in obedience. Often we are so self-deceived that we'll use prayer as an excuse for inactivity. When the task seems difficult. We'll just say, for example, when church discipline is called for, we'll pray more about it. God doesn't countenance that. He commands Joshua, I've heard your cry, get up and get active. But then notice what God does. Look at our narrative beginning in verse 10. He tells Joshua clearly what the cause of defeat is. He tells him generally and then specifically. He informs him as to the nature of the true crisis in the camp. So look generally to begin at verse 11. The Lord tells Joshua the cause of defeat. Israel has sinned. It's simple. It's the general overarching statement. The Lord's going to be specific and spell out the particulars in a moment. But the general reason why the fortunes of the people of God have come to a screeching halt, why God's hand of blessing has been removed from them, is because of sin. Sin is the cause, and no, I'm not painting with too broad a brush here. Sin is the cause, directly or indirectly, of every bit of trouble in the fallen world. Sin is what chased Adam and Eve out of the garden. Sin is what caused the worldwide flood. What was it that caused Israel to wander in the wilderness for 40 years? Their sin of unbelief, rebellion, and grumbling. We're very careless about the offensiveness of our sin to a holy God, and we desperately want to excuse our sin We'll look at other people's sins. We're good at that. And we'll say, that's weighty. That's heinous. But when it comes to our sin, we are masters. We're brilliant at excusing it. Just in the last few days, I've, I've heard believers who I've spoken to coming alongside of pastorally, and they've said the following things Well, Carl, that was, that was just a white lie. Carl, it was just a little money. It wasn't much. Carl, it's just a fleeing it's not like it will do any damage to my marriage or anyone else carl when speaking to someone who's a gossip it's just a word here and there but what i want you to see tonight is how weighty the sin of one person one action one person's sin can have phenomenal wide-reaching consequences for the whole covenant people of god let me ask you do you ever think of your sin Not the person seated next to you, but you. Do you ever think of your sin in this way, that my sin is the object of God's holy abhorrence? If you don't, then you don't understand sin. God tells Joshua as an introductory statement in the brief that he's going to present. Because the Lord is going to make a court case. He's going to present a, a legal indictment to Joshua and Israel. Here's the reason why you've known defeat. Here's the direct cause. Not because of bad generalship or or bad terrain or surprise attacks. Israel has sinned corporately. And I want you to keep that on the side, not very far from your mind, this principle. Who is it who has specifically brought down the wrath of God? It's one man and one action. But God sees the people of God as a whole. This is one of the things I'm going to desperately try to convince you of tonight we even when we see us all gathered in one room like this we still think it's a collection of individuals we don't we don't grasp that God sees the church as a whole the passage that pastor King read a moment ago the Lord was dealing with the church at Corinth because of one man's sin and the whole church was suffering people were actually dying at the Lord's table because of this sin this one sin well when one or two people in the body have a sin issue, what this text is going to teach us is don't, don't say that's their problem. It doesn't affect the church. It doesn't affect our witness. It doesn't affect my life. That's not what God says. Look carefully at the text. He says Israel has sinned. And he spells out a specific five-point indictment of Israel. The reason why he does this is to heighten the awareness of Israel, of, of the whole church, God's people concerning sin. Our awareness about our own sin, the sin of the culture, sin in the church is very low. And we'd really prefer not to hear about sin, especially our sin. It's not until someone holds our eyes and our nose in the book and specifically spells out the particulars that we have to say, you're right, this is a departing from, this is a violation, this is a breaking of God's holy law, this is wickedness and God has forbidden it. You're right. I have great need of repentance and great need of a great Savior. That's why our gospel preaching, when Paul teaches us how to do so in Romans 1 through 3, our gospel preaching begins like this not with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but when Paul shows how to preach the gospel in Romans 1 through 3, it's you violated God's holy law and are in desperate need of a Savior. So look at the indictment with me in our text. Joshua 7, beginning in verse 11, the first point. It's a five-point indictment. They have also transgressed, in verse 11, they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. Now, what is this speaking about? Look at those words. Do you understand the background? When the Lord says to Joshua, they have transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. Now, let me point something out to you. No, the Lord's not confused about pronouns. Because our, our culture is one that's very much confused about pronouns. And you'll see people who they send you an email and it says, My pronouns are, and it has 11 different words there. Well, the Lord's not confused. Look at verse 11. When he says, They, they, them, have also transgressed, you. you're thinking, Lord, it's just He. The Lord doesn't see us that way, He sees us corporately. They. Now, what does he mean when he says they have transgressed my covenant? You remember when Israel stood at the foot of Mount Sinai after just being shepherded out by a mighty hand of Egypt from bondage in Exodus 20. When God gathered the people of of God at the foot of the mountain, then he entered into a covenant with them. The central feature of that covenant was the Ten Commandments. The people of God, many of whom were small children that day, who are now standing here with Joshua, many of whom... uh, were, were at least under the age of 20, these people of God swore a public corporate oath. Do you remember what the oath was? And this is worth us seeing this with our own eyes. Keep one finger here and look back to Exodus 24. And I want you to see what the covenant was that they swore with the Lord. In Exodus 24, 6, you're going to see what the promise was they made. In Exodus 24, we are coming out of the picture of God cleansing is people by the blood of a lamb. And so this isn't some oath, don't misunderstand this oath, this isn't some oath that says, if we are sinlessly perfect, then we will achieve salvation. These people know better than that. These are people who know full well they're being redeemed as sinners by the blood of the lamb. But they are responding to the grace and the kindness and the redemption of God. And so look at Exodus 24, 6. You're going to see the covenant oath that Joshua is referring to. Exodus 24, 6, Moses took half the blood, put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. These people are having the blood of the covenant sprinkled on them to show they're not saved by works, they're saved by the blood of the Lamb. But then what do they promise? As God's redeemed people, this is the point we need to have drilled into our minds over and over again. Just because we're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb doesn't free us from obedience to God's commandments since we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, it motivates us to obey as God's people. Look at what the people of God say in Exodus 24-7. Stare at these words. He took the book of the covenant. This is primarily the Ten Commandments and their exposition. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. They are covenanting to universal obedience. This is what God is referring to in our text in Joshua 7 when he says they have transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. He's he's hearkening back to that day in Exodus 24 when Israel as a blood sprinkled redeemed people said we are so grateful for free grace and for redemption. Lord whatever you command we will obey. When Achan took the gold and silver and the garment in Jericho he was violating that covenant with God. God had told them even more, and Achan had agreed. Just look back one chapter in Joshua chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. God had given them a command and said, Abstain from all the accursed things, all the silver and gold and vessels and bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury. So, this command, whereby the Lord had specifically stated, This is what you're to give to God, it's not obscure. It's not obtuse. It was a well known instruction. Achan had heard it. Now he's daring God to make good on his threat. Even though Achan and his fathers had said publicly, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The first point of God's indictment is they've transgressed my covenant. Look at the second point in verse 11. God specifically says they've taken some of the accursed things. God had told them not to take things under the ban. They've broken God's covenant, severely disobeying. Look at the third part of the indictment in verse 11. They have both stolen and deceived. So this is now, we're getting more specific. This is a direct breach of the eighth commandment. They have stolen. At this point, perhaps you're saying, well, good. Private property is a good thing. These people are thieves, or at least is. I hope God gets them. But step back from this a moment before you get too self-righteous. What are the two most precious commodities that you have? Time and money. How often do you steal time from the Lord? Taking portions of the Lord's day, that whole day that is to be set aside for the worship of God, for the exercise of private and public duties of religion, or money? The two most precious commodities we have, time and money, how often do you say, God won't miss it? I'm not going to give him the tithe or the offerings. It's no big thing. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He won't mind. He'll wink at my sin. How often have you robbed God, stolen from him, of the two most precious commodities that you have, time and money? The fourth point in the indictment, still verse 11. Well, the Lord says they have taken some of the accursed things and they've both stolen and deceived. The Lord says deception is now taking place. And he's speaking of Achan's sin of taking the, the gold and silver, the idols, and burying them in his tent. By doing so, he's engaged in intentional deception. The more secret a sin is, the more wicked the heart is. The fact that there was planning and scheming and strategizing to cover sin shows the depth of vileness. We often do the exact same thing. We'll premeditate and we'll say, of course never out loud, never to another person, how can we pull this sin off with the least bit of shame to ourselves? When was the last time you did this? Your reasoning in your heart. I'm going to tell this lie to my wife how can I do it in such a way that I can cover myself and nobody ever discover? I'm going to do this act, but how can I strategically implement it so that no one will find out? The principle, of course, is the more secret a sin is, the greater pains that are taken to cover it up, the more vile our heart is. Anytime you attempt to scheme, to sin privately, and enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, and try to minimize the danger of being discovered by your family or Christian brothers. That is the height of impiety. When you think you can actually hide from an omniscient, omnipresent God, you're engaging in sheer idolatry. When you're saying, I'm going to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I'm going to act like God's not omnipresent. I'm going to act like God's not omniscient. That's the height of wickedness. If you're thinking you've heard God's warning, look what Achan had heard in Joshua 6.18. Look back across the page at Joshua 6.18. Achan was there and heard this word. And this is profound to me. It's probably only profound to me. You probably considered this and grasped it long ago. But it's profound to me that a man can hear this word from God's mouthpiece and then sin with a high hand. Look at Joshua 6.18. The word had come from Joshua, By all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. Achan had heard that word. He knew that God would trouble Israel if the ban was violated. And so 3,000 Israelite soldiers go out to Ai, 36 fewer come back alive. There are 36 new widows in the camp that night. Dozens of orphans, new orphans that night. There's mourning and despair. And no doubt, Achan is making a show of weeping. He's doing this with the rest of the camp. Oh, this is, this is horrible. This is awful. He's back in the camp with the accursed goods hidden in his tent. 36 families, now without a dad. And he knew the cause. He knew it was him. Does he say anything? No. Does he step forward to own up his sin and say... I'm the reason. I'm the cause. 36 households don't have a father tonight because of me. I'm the reason there are dozens and dozens of new orphans. I'm the guilty one. Not a word, just deception and hypocrisy. Look at the fifth and final point of God's indictment. We read, they have also put it among their own stuff. This is profane and sacrilegious. It's God's possession. It's not to go home with you. That's the point. Achan has taken that which belongs to God. God has given Israel the ceremonial law, ceremonial law to mark out what's clean and what's unclean so they'll have the, the practice of making clear and constant distinctions. Israel is to be skilled experts at making distinctions. This should be an easy one for Achan as he's going through Jericho. This belongs to God. That needs to be burned up. Clear distinction. But he says, no, I know that this is marked out for God, but I'm going to take it. I'm going to put it with my things and act like it's mine. And that's what God has against him. And look at verse 11, and Israel at the end of verse 11. Notice the pronoun, they. They have put it among their own stuff. Now, why did God give Israel this five-point indictment? Because until Israel viewed sin as seriously as God views it, corporate sin they'll never be prepared to deal with sin God's way the Lord not only informs Joshua of the reason for the tragedy that there's sin in the camp but he also informs him of the consequences of that sin if it's not purged from out of the camp and the cause is allowed to continue look at verse 12 the Lord says therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies but they turned their backs before their enemies because they've become doomed to destruction god is saying you'll suffer more than one little defeat now relatively speaking isn't god gracious to make their losses small only 36 soldiers killed but god is saying this is just a down payment what you're looking at stretching out in front of you is defeat after defeat if you don't deal with sin that's the continuing consequence of hidden sin. Look at the ultimatum of God in the second part of verse 12. And this should send chills up and down your spine. And this is when it gets really serious, the indictment. The second part of verse 12, the Lord says, Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Let me state this as a premise and then repeat it and repeat it. I said this chapter, Joshua 7, is about the act and consequences of corporate sin. God will not dwell in the midst of a people who refuse to dwell with sin, to deal with sin. Let me say that again and again and again. God will not dwell in the midst of a people who refuse to deal with sin. That's why we as people of the Reformation for the last 500 years, when people have said, how do I know a true church? I have this question all the time. When people say, I'm at a church and I, I think there may be some odd things going on there and a little weird and this is happening, this is happening, but how do I know if that's really a true church or not? For 500 years, the Protestant reformers and their descendants have said there are three marks of a true church. The preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, and the practice of church discipline. If a church doesn't do church discipline, it's no church. It's not legit. Whether it was Luther, or Calvin, or Zwingli, or Knox, or our creeds, all the reformers said this. This is one of the three marks of a true and living church, church discipline. The willingness to deal with sin in the midst because we realize if we don't deal with sin in the midst and we wink at sin, we rapidly cease to become a legitimate church of Christ and the presence of God will be removed from us. What is God's ultimatum? Stare at the end of verse 12. This is a massive lesson for Woodford Presbyterian Church. I will not be with you unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Far bigger than losing future battles, God says, if you don't deal with sin in the camp, I'll depart. Nothing is more crucial to Israel and the old covenant or the people of God today than God's continuing presence with them and with us. For example, look back to Joshua 1, and I want you to see what the essence of the covenant promise was at the beginning of this book. In Joshua 1, look at Joshua 1. What did God promise Joshua and the people of God when Joshua was ordained and installed as the leader? In Joshua 1.5, the Lord says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses. Here it comes. So I will be with you. The Lord is promising his presence with Joshua. God is saying to Joshua, I will be your rock and your fortress. That's the source of your strength and power over your enemies. And then look at Joshua 1.9. This is repeated again. By the way, this is the essence of the covenant where God says, Have I not commanded you be strong and of good courage? Don't be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. His presence is with you wherever you go. We see the same thing all through the book of Joshua. It's the unique feature of Israel and the church's existence today in the new covenant that God is in our midst. The essence of the covenant between God and his people is this. I will be your God, you shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Nothing should disturb disturb God's people more than the thought of the loss of God's presence from among us. Nothing should bother us more than the idea that God might withdraw his presence from us. God is saying very clearly here in Joshua 7 that judgment and discipline must take place if he is to remain. God says it very clearly in verse 12. Joshua, if you don't deal with the sin, I'll depart. So I want you to notice, I hinted at this earlier, the corporate language. Look at Joshua 7 verse 11. Now, once you see this language and you're going to say, Carl is an American, I don't understand this. Maybe we need to be conformed more to God's language, scriptural language, instead of sociocultural language. Look at Joshua seven eleven, where the Lord says, Israel, Israel has sinned. Wait a minute. I thought that just one guy had snuck around and grabbed a hold of some things. He shouldn't and hid them in his tent. God says, Israel has sinned. This hits us hard in the face of our American individualism and says, why do you think in terms of the Christian life only of yourself? Why do you draw a circle around yourself about three feet in diameter and say, all that God cares about is just what I'm doing? Friends, God has placed you in a community. He's placed you in the midst of his people. And your concern can not only be for your privatized sanctification, but it must be for the spiritual health and well-being of the people of God. When God looks down upon Israel that day in the camp, he says, Israel is in sin. And I want to prove that to you. Look at verse 11 and 12. And I want you to notice all plurals, no singulars. Look at verse 11 and 12. They have transgressed. They have even taken some of the accursed things. They have put it among their own stuff. They cannot stand before their enemies. Do you see the corporate language? This underscores the corporate consequences of sin. I hope if there's anything you leave here tonight with, it's this. An understanding that says, Never again will I think that somebody else in the congregation, somebody else's sin has no effect on me. Does this have a new covenant application? Yeah, sure, there's some aspects of this saga that are unique in the history of redemption, but there is a profound new covenant application. We should expect that. Look at 1 Corinthians 10 and I want to remind you how Paul teaches the New Testament church to think corporately this way. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is speaking to a group of Gentiles by and large, not ethnic descendants of Abraham, Gentiles. And what does he say to them? In 1 Corinthians 10:1, Paul says, moreover brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all of our fathers he calls he says to these gentiles your fathers you gentiles moses joshua they're your fathers because god has one people and that is his covenant people the elect he says i don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud all passed through the sea all were baptized into moses in the cloud and the sea all ate the same spiritual food all drank the same spiritual drink they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was christ but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things, the saga we're reading in Joshua, these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, says, all these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our admonition. Why do you have the example of Joshua 7? Why is it in the canon of scripture? Because Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it was written for us. You and I are supposed to read Joshua 7 and respond, that's a very interesting, very compelling story, but it really doesn't have any implication for the year 2023. No, that's not what you're supposed to say. 1 Corinthians 10.11 says from Paul, they were written for us, for our example. We're to learn to think corporately this way. What's the application? What is it that we're to understand? We must understand that the New Testament holds the exact same corporate perspective of sins in God's church. A moment ago, Pastor King was reading to us out of 1 Corinthians 5. And that's why Paul said there in that text, here's the case of the church at Corinth. They had this egregious, outrageous case of sexual immorality. One person. Paul's very clear about that. One person engaged in crazy sexual sin. And Paul doesn't say, well, that's their problem. I wish he wouldn't do that. Paul says, deal with this immediately because, and he states the principle, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's the principle that we're to understand. Paul sees this and and says it must be dealt with quickly and radically for if it's not addressed, it'll infect the whole church. In Revelation 1 and 2, The letters to the seven churches, only some at the church at Ephesus had left their first love, but all were impacted. If they didn't repent, Christ was going to come and remove their lampstand. When church people continue in impenitence, the whole church is affected. Whole congregations, whole denominations have become impotent and lifeless and dead because they don't heed this principle. So Let me make two important applications. First of all, if we at Woodruff Road tolerate and wink at sin and refuse to deal with it, then let me stop and say this. I'm so thankful for our elders, the elders that have raised up that you have chosen because they're men. They're godly, strong men. And when we've been faced with these type of issues, they do it with tears. They do it with broken hearts. But they exercise biblical church discipline. I can sleep well at night knowing we have godly elders who value this. But you can be sure that the Lord Jesus Christ, if we tolerate and wink at sin, will deal the same way with us that he dealt with the seven churches in Revelation and the same way he dealt with Israel in Joshua's day. We say the Lord will make an exception in Woodruff Road's case because we've got it all together and our theology is better. No. The Lord will remove Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church's lampstand if we're not zealous about confronting sin, confessing sin, repenting of sin. If we corporately allow unchecked sin, soon we too will be devoid of the presence of God. Soon we'll be a synagogue of Satan. This can happen if sin is openly tolerated. You desire the continuing presence of Christ with this corporate body? Are there secret sins, undealt with sins that are grieving the Holy Spirit? Are you perhaps an Achan in the midst? I'm talking about sins that you labor to keep hidden. My friend, could it be you who is slowly bringing the displeasure of God upon the congregation? Let me plead with you to repent so that the whole church might not be harmed, so that God's presence might remain with his church. The second application. I'd be remiss if I didn't preach the gospel. It's the duty of every minister to preach the gospel from every text he can. And one of the things that should stand out in sharp relief in this text, in this text we have the picture of every single one of us sinning and hiding it. The vast bulk of our sin is like an iceberg. It rarely even comes above the surface of the water. The bulk of our sin is hidden. It's sin of the heart, sin of the mind. It's deep and we labor to keep it covered. But this is the glorious thing about our Lord Jesus Christ. We're told repeatedly in scripture that he never sinned in word, thought, or deed. No hidden sin. No sins of the mind. Don't make the mistake about the Lord Jesus thinking that he's just sort of like me. Maybe just a little better. The Lord Jesus Christ, certainly he resembles us in that he has come in the flesh. He had a real body and a reasonable soul. But there was never a sin. Never a lingering glance that turned into lust. Never a sin in thought or deed or word. What you and I this evening desperately need, since we bear too much similarity to Achan, what we desperately need is someone who has, in our place, lived a sinless life and has never committed one secret sin in word, thought, or deed. And then they take that sinless life and they graciously impute that righteousness, that earned righteousness to the account of wicked men like you and I. And they bear the penalty for our sin on the cross. The good news of the gospel is such a person exists. That the Lord Jesus Christ has come all the way down and lived a sinless life, never having one aching moment. He's lived such a life. Tonight he opens his arms to sinners and says, come receive eternal life freely, graciously, if you'll receive my finished work on your behalf. My friend, I would plead with you tonight, turn away from secret sin and flee to Christ. He's the anti-Achan. In him alone is there any hope in eternal life. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we thank you that you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be the substitute, the sinless, righteous substitute for sinners, for wicked men and women, We pray that you would take this text now and burn it into our hearts, that we would no longer wink at sin, that we would deal with it radically. Lord Jesus, in your days in the flesh, you counseled us to deal harshly with sin, to chop off right hands and pluck out right eyes, that we might enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, Lord, we pray that tonight you would cause us to be harsh with our own sin, that we would run in hope to the Lord Jesus as the Savior of sinners and the one who forgives and cleanses all our trespasses. Lord, how we plead with you to not remove your presence from the midst of your people, but instead stay in our midst and expose our sin that we might look to you for cleansing. We pray this in the name of the one who never sinned, the one who died a substitutionary atoning death, the one who rose from the dead and now reigns.